Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Dua Lipa at Your Service, a podcast series in which I sit down with guests who inspire me deeply. Today's episode is a profound and powerful one with my very special guest, Brian Stevenson, which you'll hear after the break. But before we get to that, I wanted to answer a listener email from Sam, who's written me the following. Hey, Dua. I'm a college student in the United States and I'll be studying abroad in London from January to June and want to get the most out of the experience. So I was wondering, what are the best weekend trips to take from London around Europe? Sam, thank you so much for sending in your question. I'm very excited that you're going to be studying abroad in London. I'm definitely biased because London's my city and I think it's the best city in the world. But should you want to leave London, we're very lucky that we have the Eurostar from King's Cross Station which can take you to Paris. It can now take you to Amsterdam. All those really fun weekend trips and it's really, really close by. Or if you want to fly to, they're like really quick flights as well. And there's always so much to see. And I think that's kind of the beauty about being so close to Europe. You get the opportunity, you can go to Berlin. There's there's just so much to explore. There's incredible galleries, amazing food. And I think especially while you're in London, you should make the most of trying to see as many European cities and countries. So... Yeah, have fun, enjoy, and good luck with your studies. If you're like Sam and want to hear a particular list from me, be sure to write in and ask. Our email address is podcast at service95.com. And you never know, I may just answer your email on next week's episode. After this short break, please stay tuned for my conversation with Brian Stevenson. You won't want to miss it. Welcome back. There are many things I love about doing this podcast, but what makes me feel most honored and humbled is talking to some of the world's most exceptional activists, people who are quite literally saving lives through their vision, tenacity, and bravery. My guest this week has those same qualities as his mission. Brian Stevenson's work as a lawyer and as the founder and director of the Equal Justice Initiative has saved over 135 people from death row, the majority of them black men, who are disproportionately found at every stage of the criminal justice system. Mass incarceration was created by policy decisions. We decided to deal with drug addiction and drug dependency as a crime issue rather than a health issue. We didn't have to do that. But the reason why we didn't do that was because of a narrative, and there's a narrative of fear and anger out there. Politicians want you to be afraid, and they want you to be angry. And I will tell you that you can't do justice rooted in fear and anger. To do justice, you've got to get past fear, past anger, and believe things you have not seen. Brian has argued and won multiple cases at the United States Supreme Court, fighting against what he says is a system of justice in the U.S. that treats you much better if you're rich and guilty than if you're poor and innocent. In his words, wealth, not culpability, shapes outcomes. His dedication to the poor, the incarcerated, and the condemned led Archbishop Desmond Tutu to call him America's young Nelson Mandela. Ultimately, you judge the character of a society not by how they treat the rich and the powerful and the privileged, but by how they treat the poor, the condemned, the incarcerated. Because it's in that nexus that we actually begin to understand truly profound things about who we are. Brian is also a civil rights leader calling for an American era of truth and reconciliation on race. Slavery didn't end in 1865, he says. It just evolved. In 2018, he founded the Legacy Museum and the National Monument for Peace and Justice in Montgomery, Alabama, 
two national landmarks that chronicle the country's evolution through slavery, the Jim Crow era and lynching, to today's epidemic of mass incarceration and racial injustice. The conversation you're about to hear touches on themes of injustice, poverty, racism, and apartheid that have stayed with me long after our recording. While they trigger feelings of righteous anger, the emotion that stays with me longest is compassion, and I hope it will do the same for you. Please welcome this week's At Your Service guest, Brian Stevenson. Hi, Brian. How are you? I'm well. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Well, I have to first tell you that my cool rating jumped dramatically <laughs> with my nieces when I told them I was going to be talking to you this morning. So oh, thank you for goodness. that. Oh my goodness, it's an honor. It's an honor <laughs> to get to talk to you. Where are you right now? I'm in Montgomery, Alabama. Uh, this is uh, my office here at the Equal Justice Initiative. Amazing. Well, it's a real um, pleasure to get to talk to you. And yeah. I thought in the beginning, I should start by maybe sharing some statistics with our listeners that just kind of provide a little bit of context for the conversation yeah. that we're about to have. In 1972, there were 300,000 incarcerated people in the US. And today there's 2.2 million. One in every 15 people born today in the US is expected to go to prison in their lifetime. For black men, this figure rises to one in three. And for every nine people executed, one person on death row has been exonerated, which is an insane margin of error. Yeah. And Brian, what I would really like is, do you think you could give me a picture of America today and the sort of society it is in terms of how the criminal justice system works? Yeah, well, I mean, I think those statistics are incredibly revealing about the crisis that we are in, in our country. Throughout most of the 20th century, the prison population here was largely stable. That changed in the 1970s when we had a generation of politicians come in who were preaching what I call the politics of fear and anger. And they began to use fear and anger to cause people to tolerate things that would otherwise seem intolerable, to accept things that should have been seen as unacceptable. We said that people who are dealing with drug addiction and drug dependency are criminals. And we began using the prisons to treat addiction and dependency. Now, we should have said that people suffering from addiction and dependency have a health problem and we need a healthcare response. But in this very punitive carceral environment, we began to just use punishment as a response and it just got worse and worse. We passed life without parole sentences for all kinds of crimes. We lowered the minimum age for trying children as adults. Now we have a prison population of 2.2 million. We have the highest rate of incarceration in the world. And the thing about those data that you outlined, that projection of one in three black male babies going to prison during their lifetime, there was no pandemic-like response when that data came out. And now I go into communities where I sit down with 12 and 13 year old kids who, when we have honest conversations, say to me, I know I'm going to be in prison by the time I'm 21 or 25. And so I've got to go out here and get mine while I can. And we are fostering a kind of hopelessness and despair in so many communities across this country. And part of why I think education and activism is so important is that we have to end this kind of punitive mindset, this 
narrative of fear and anger and begin to reclaim lives and reclaim communities that have been devastated by mass incarceration. And it's a fiscal thing, too. We've spent billions of dollars on policing and prosecution and prison and not spent money on education, on health care, on services. It is the reason why I think this is such a critical issue. We've got someone facing execution here in Alabama and in two weeks. And it's always overwhelming knowing the high rate of wrongful convictions, the high number of innocent people, that data one out of nine. If someone said, you know, one out of nine apples has a toxin on it, and if you touch that apple, you will die, we would stop selling apples. Yeah. But because we're talking about people on death row, we continue to tolerate that level of risk. And I think that's the great challenge that we have is getting people to wake up to this inequality, this injustice. Yeah, the lack of representation is really what has happened there at such a great scale that's kept these men in death row and not given them the opportunity for justice. Yeah. Now, we often say that we have a system right now that treats you better if you're rich and guilty than if you're poor and innocent. Wealth, not culpability, shapes mm. outcomes because we have people literally dying for legal assistance. And I just don't think you can reconcile a commitment to justice with a world where you have these kinds of inequalities, these yeah. kinds of injustices. Yeah, right. So that's the situation today. But I, I, would, I would really like to know where you started from. Could you paint a picture for me of your childhood and what yeah. life was like growing up in the Stevenson household? <laughs> well, you know, in many ways, my childhood was very influential in the work that I do today because I grew up in a community that was still subject to Jim Crow and segregation. I grew up in a racially segregated poor community in a rural part of the country. When I was a little boy, I started my education in a colored school because black children could not attend the public schools. But lawyers came into our community and made them open up the public schools by enforcing the Supreme Court ruling that declared that racial segregation in education was unconstitutional. And even though that had been on the books for a decade, it wasn't enforced until these lawyers right. came into our community. Yeah. Mm. And because these lawyers came to our community, I had opportunities that the adults in my community didn't have. I got to go to high school and then I got to go to college and I went to law school with an awareness of what those lawyers had done for me. And I wanted to do that for other people. And I do feel like my surroundings as a child, seeing those signs, you know, white and colored and all of that humiliation and my parents struggling to overcome that was hugely influential. And while it was difficult to see that, I also feel like I was fortunate because I'm the product of people who have endured. My great grandfather was enslaved in the 1850s, and yet he learned to read while he was enslaved because he believed one day he would be free. Mm. And because he learned to read after emancipation, my grandmother said that Formerly enslaved people would come to their home every week and my great grandfather would read the newspaper and she wow. loved the power that he had just by being able to read. And she would sit next to him and she'd say, Dad, I want you to teach me to read. And she became a reader. And even though she worked as a domestic her whole life, she had 10 children. My mom was the youngest of her 10 kids. She made sure all of her children were readers, that they loved reading. Amazing. And we grew up poor. In this racially segregated community, but my mom went into debt 
to buy us the World Book Encyclopedia so we would have a portal on a world bigger than the world we could see in front of us. And, you know, as a child, I didn't always understand that because I would go outside during the holidays and my friends would say, oh, I got a basketball, I got a bicycle, I got a bat, I got a glove. And I'd have to say, well, I got volume G of the World Book <laughs> Encyclopedia. But now I realize the hope that was represented mm -hmm. in that act. And I think it very much has empowered me to do some of the work that I do today. Yeah, it was a real... A real gift. And I mean, yeah. you, you must have been incredibly driven because you went on to study at um, study law at Harvard, yeah. which is a huge, huge achievement under any circumstances. Yeah. Yet in your memoir, Just Mercy, you talk about being slightly adrift at Harvard <laughs> and not knowing if law was the right choice for you, which yeah. obviously now that has clearly changed. But I wonder, was there like a pivotal moment that set you on the path of... Um, advocating for the poor yeah. and the incarcerated and yeah. condemned. Yeah, well, I know you can probably relate to that because just doing the extraordinary things that you do, I'm sure there are many times when you're just sort of uncertain about, like, is this the way to go? And I certainly had that same experience because I went to law school because I wanted to help the poor. I wanted to help people who were marginalized. And it just didn't seem like there was an emphasis on that. And I left the law school and went to the School of Government to get a degree in public policy. So I also graduated from the School of Government there. But I was struggling until I took a course that required me to spend a month in Georgia with a human rights organization providing legal services to people on death row. And I talk about this a lot because I am persuaded that getting proximate to the poor, the excluded, the neglected, the marginalized is really key if you want to do things to advance justice, if you want to make a difference in the world, you actually have to get close to the people who are suffering and struggling. And when I went to Georgia and was asked to go to death row and meet someone they hadn't had time to meet, I was pretty overwhelmed by that assignment. I didn't feel like I was well qualified to be talking to a death row prisoner just as a law student, but I went and they took me back to the visitation room and I had this amazing encounter, this condemned man they brought in. He was burdened with chains. He had handcuffs on his wrist. He had a chain around his waist. He had shackles on his ankles. It took them 10 minutes to unchain him. And I was so unnerved by the bondage that he was experiencing. Mm. I just forgot what I was supposed to do. I was supposed to just tell him that he wasn't at risk of execution anytime in the next year. But instead, I just began to apologize. I said, I'm so sorry. I'm just a law student. I don't know much about the death penalty. I don't know much about appellate procedure, criminal procedure. And then I remembered, I said, but I'm here to tell you that you're not at risk of execution anytime in the next year. And that man stopped me and said, wait, 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 say that again. I said, you're not at risk of execution anytime in the next year. And the man said, wait, say that again. I said, you're not at risk of execution anytime in the next year. And that's when he hugged me and he said, thank you, thank you, thank you. He said, you're the first person I've met in two years who's not a death row prisoner or death row guard. He said, I've been talking to my wife and kids, but I haven't allowed them to come and visit because I was afraid I'd have a date and I didn't want them to have to deal with that. He said, now because of you, I'm going to see my wife, I'm going to see my children. And what struck me was how even in my ignorance, being present could have an impact like that. And we began talking. It turned out we were exactly the same age, same month, same day, same year. And we just had this amazing conversation. I lost all track of time and we were talking and we were laughing. And I was only supposed to be there an hour, but I was there for three hours. And the guards got angry because I hadn't ended the visit. 
And after three hours came bursting into the room and they couldn't do anything to me, but they took it out on this man. They threw him against the wall, they pulled his arms back. They put the handcuffs back on his wrist tightly. They wrapped the chain around his waist, put the shackles back on his ankles and they were treating him roughly. And I begged them to be gentler and they just ignored me. And I was really unnerved by how violently they were getting him out the room and I watched in horror. But when he got near the door, I saw him plant his feet and then he turned to me and he said, Brian, don't worry about this. You just come back. And then he did something I've never forgotten. He closed his eyes. He threw his head back and he started to sing. And he started wow. singing this hymn. He started singing, I'm pressing on the upward way. New heights I'm gaining every day, still praying as I'm onward bound. And then he said, Lord, plant my feet on higher ground. And everybody stopped. And the guards recovered and they started pushing him down the hallway. And you could hear the chains clanging, but you could hear this man singing about higher ground. And when I heard him sing, everything changed. That's the moment that I knew I wanted to help condemned people get to higher ground. And it radicalized my interest in the law. I went back to Harvard Law School. You couldn't get me out of the law school library. I needed to know everything about the jurisprudence necessary to help the condemned. And that's why I am persuaded that when we get close to the poor, the excluded, the marginalized, the homeless, the hungry, the incarcerated, we experience things that educate us, but also empower us to be the kind of advocates, to be the kind of activists, to be the kind of people that I think many of us want to be at a time when there is so much hurt in the world, when there's so much suffering in the world. And a lot of times the instinct is to run away from those who suffer, run away from those who've been excluded. And what I've learned is that sometimes we have to actually walk toward that. And that's what happened to me in law school. And it set me on this path. And I'm really grateful for that experience. I tell people all the time, if I've helped anybody during my career, if I've had any success as a lawyer representing people, it's not because I'm hardworking or smart or anything like that. It's because I got proximate to a condemned man and heard his song. Your and dedication as well. Yeah, absolutely. The dedication is, is, is very inspiring. It's, yeah, um, yeah. It, it, I mean, what a profound experience. And, you know, you also instilled a lot of hope for him too, that in that moment he also felt free to sing and to hope for higher ground as well, which which is incredibly moving. We'll be right back. I'd I'd really like to understand more about how and why some people are so disadvantaged when it comes to their legal representation. Mm -hmm. You know, if we take two of your better known cases, Walter McMillan and Anthony Ray Hinton, you know, both men were convicted of horrific crimes and sentenced to death and both men were ultimately proved entirely innocent. What did their cases have in common in terms of the kind of representation that were that they were granted, the sentences they received, the legal obstacles that they had to overcome to win their freedom? The first thing is they were both poor. And as I've mentioned, we have created this system by spending billions on policing and prosecution and prisons, but not spending a corresponding amount of money on making sure that poor people have adequate representation. Hmm. We've just created this world where if you are indigent, you are vulnerable to prosecution. And I think that was the first thing. The second thing is that they were both black. And in this country, because of our long history of racial inequality, 
there is a presumption of dangerousness and guilt that gets assigned to black and brown people. And it is a function of our long history, the legacy of racial injustice that we, uh, some people unconsciously, some people consciously accept that when black and brown people come into court accused of a crime, they are presumptively guilty. Now, our Constitution says you're supposed to presume them innocent. innocent. We don't really do that for people of color and certainly for poor people of color. I think the third thing is that we have a very politicized system because of that politics of fear and anger. We're in a moment where prosecutors and police get rewarded. They get celebrated. They get promoted for convicting people of these crimes and imposing these harsh punishments. You know, the judge in Walter McMillan's case was this man whose name was happened to be Robert E. Lee Key, who was very determined in an elected system, in a political system, to say to the community, look how tough I am. And so even though the jury in Mr. McMillan's case had actually recommended that he be given life without parole, because I think they had doubts about his guilt, mm -hmm. the judge overrode that verdict and said, no death penalty for you. In Ray Hinton's case, the pressure on police to solve the crimes was so great that I believe they just wanted anybody. And that was true in the McMillan case. This murder took place in Monroeville, which is the community where Harper Lee grew up and wrote To Kill Out Mockingbird. It's a community that was very romantic about that legacy, that narrative. And when this murder took place in downtown Monroeville, it really upset a lot of people. And eight months had gone by, had no arrests, and they were putting pressure on the police and prosecutors. And Mr. McMillan was having an affair with a young white woman, and that made him a target. Some people thought, well, if anyone bold enough to do that is bold enough to commit this mm -hmm. crime. And despite the fact that there was overwhelming evidence of his innocence from the very beginning, once they made their arrest, they were committed to this idea that he was guilty. And um, sadly, these dynamics are very prevalent, and that's why we've had scores of innocent people wrongly convicted and sentenced to death. And death penalty cases are the cases where we make the most effort, where we try the hardest to get it right. And yet we see this uh, high rate of uh, wrongful conviction and high rate of unreliability. I was also um, really shocked to learn recently that there are more than three times the number of seriously mentally ill individuals in jails or prisons in the U.S. than in hospitals. And there's a story that you tell in Just Mercy about a man called Avery Jenkins that illustrates very clearly why this is so problematic. And Avery was convicted of horrific crimes that's not contested, but his traumatic upbringing and his serious mental health issues, those weren't taken into account at all during the sentencing. And I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about Avery's story. And, you know, by doing so, please also, you know, share what you learned from your interaction with his prison guard. Yeah, well, you're absolutely right. We do have a huge problem of people with mental illness and mental disability filling up our jails and prisons. I had not met Avery Jenkins until I went to the prison and I drove down there and it was just one of those days where I had a very difficult encounter when I got to the prison. You know, So I live in Alabama. It's a region where you see a lot of iconography that I regard as hostile. It celebrates the era of slavery. It celebrates these kind of narratives of white supremacy. And when I parked my car, I noticed that there was a truck that had all of these Confederate flags and symbols. It had all of these statements that were really racist. And one of the bumper stickers on the truck was, quote, 
if I'd known it would be like this, I'd have picked my own cotton, which was this really hostile way of expressing resentment against black people. But I saw all of that. And then I went into the prison. And when I got to the door, this guard came out and he was just disbelieving that I was a lawyer. I said, I'm here for a legal visit. And the man said, you're not a lawyer. I said, no, I am a lawyer. I've been here before. He said, where's your bar card? I said, well, I've never had to show my bar card before. He said, I'm not letting you in without your bar card. So I went back to my car, got my bar card, but I was really insulted by this. And I said, look, here's my bar card. I want to see my client. And the guard said, well, you've got a bar card, but I still don't trust you. So you're going to have to go in the bathroom and I'm going to give you a strip search before I let you in. And a strip search is really humiliating. It's just awful. And I said, no, I'm a lawyer, but no one would come Mm. and shield me from that protocol. And I knew I needed to see this man. So I subjected myself to this humiliating search, came back out, and I said, look, I want to see my client. And this is not usual protocol for lawyers. Not at all. Lawyers are never subjected to that kind of treatment. And he finally got me to the door to go into the chamber. And when I got there, he said, hey, let me ask you something. I said, what? He said, did you see that truck out there with all those bumper stickers and flags? I said, yeah, I saw that truck. He said, I want you to know that that's my truck. Really just difficult. And I went inside and Avery Jenkins came out. It was the first time I met him. And uh, he sat down. And the first thing he said was, uh, did you bring me a chocolate milkshake? And I thought to myself, my God, this is the strangest thing I've ever had. (laughs) I said, no, I didn't bring you a chocolate milkshake. I'm your lawyer. I'm here to represent you. And he he couldn't pay attention after I said that. I said, look, I'm sorry. The next time I come, if they let me, I'll bring you a chocolate milkshake. And then I realized he was severely mentally disabled. He had been in 29 foster homes by the time he was 11 years old. At the age of 13, he began showing symptoms of bipolar disorder. At 15, he became schizophrenic. At 17, he was uh, drug addicted and beginning to have psychotic episodes in the middle of a psychotic episode when he was 19, when he thought he was being attacked by demons when people were walking down the street. He reacted to a man who he thought was a demon. It was just a man walking down the street and he stabbed that man to death, which was tragic. But the real other problem was when I read his record, there was no discussion about his mental health, his history, his mental illness, his psychoses. None of it was presented. Mm. And he was tried very unfairly. So I began working on trying to get mental health people to help me explain to the courts why this man was disabled and not a proper candidate for execution. And we finally had a hearing several months later. And when I got to court, I said to Avery, I said, look, I need you to just try to pay attention. He would always ask me, did you bring me a chocolate milkshake? I was never able to do that. I said, no, but I want you to pay attention. And I noticed that that guard who had treated me so badly was the officer that had brought him to the courthouse. And he was just glaring at me. And for three days, we put on our evidence. I felt good about the hearing. Our experts were great. They were educating the court about mental illness. We had foster parents testify. And I felt a little hopeful. And about a month later, I went back to the prison to see Avery. And I saw the truck in the parking lot when I parked my car and expected that same kind of humiliating treatment and had to kind of really persuade myself not to just turn around and come back another day. I said, no, you got to go. And I went up the steps and there was that officer. And I went up to him and said, hi, I'm Brian Stevenson. I'm here for a legal visit. Here's my bar card. And the man immediately said, oh, you don't need that. I said, Okay, well, I'll go in the bathroom and get ready for your search. He said, oh, we're not going to do that, Mr. Stevenson. You don't have to worry about that. 
I said, thank you. And he started walking me over to the door and I didn't trust it. I thought he was setting me up because the last time it was it's so bad. Such a turn of events yeah. now, all of a sudden. And, and I, was, I was watching him really carefully because I didn't know what was going on. Mm. And we got over to the door and he tried to unlock the door and I could see that his hands were shaking so badly. He couldn't get the key in the door. And then finally he unlocked the door and he turned around, his face was red. He said, Mrs. Stevenson, can I please tell you something? I said, sure. He said, I want you to know I was in that courtroom during that hearing for Avery Jenkins. And I was listening. And he said, I, I want you to know, I think what you're doing is a good thing. He said, I grew up in the foster care system too. He said, I had it really, really bad. He said, I didn't think anybody had it worse than I did, but I realized that your client had it worse than I did. He said, listening in that hearing, I realized I'm a really angry person. He said, but I also realized that what you're doing is a good thing. And then he said, I hope you keep fighting for justice. Wow. And he put his hand out and said, can I please shake your hand? And I would have never, ever expected anything yes. like that was possible. Yeah, especially with the way it all, it all yeah, started out. Yeah. And I shook his hand and I said, um, thank you. I really appreciate that means a lot. And I turned to go into the visitation or, and he grabbed me by the arm and said, wait, 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 I got to tell you something else. I said, what's that? He said, well, I just want you to know that after the hearing was over, on the way back to death row, I did something with your client. I said, what'd you do? He says, well, I took an exit and I took him to a Wendy's and I bought him a chocolate milkshake. And it was just this moment that reinforced for me how critical it is that we never give up hope on people. I believe deeply in rehabilitation and restoration and redemption for all of my clients, but I want to believe that for everybody because I would have never expected that. And for the first time when I went to see my client, Avery, he did not ask me for a chocolate milkshake. And so it just reinforces for me the importance of pushing and trying to be truth tellers because mm. you never know the consequences, the impact of that kind of truth telling. Yeah, the education can have so much positive repercussion. Yeah. yeah. Can really change people's outlook and, and yeah. it's it's an incredibly powerful story, that yeah. experience. Yeah. A significant volume of your caseload is working with young clients. And you've done some incredible campaigning to challenge the prosecution of children as if they were adults and mm -hmm. the placement of juveniles in adult prisons, which is shockingly widespread. Yeah. And what strikes me most, though, when I read the stories of the children you've represented is that you're not just their lawyer. You know, they need you to almost be their dad or their uncle yeah. or their mentor. Yeah. And, and you really seem to, to really embrace that. How critical is that part of the job, not just to the client, but also to you? For me, it's absolutely critical. And uh, particularly, you know, we have created this world where some children are demonized, some children are discarded at very young ages. You know, we talk about a pipeline in the U.S. from schoolhouse to jailhouse where so many children are thought to be not really children. And we had criminologists going around in the 80s and 90s arguing that some kids look like kids and sound like kids, but they're not kids. And they came up with this term, they're, quote, super predators. And that label was used to justify these policies. And every state in America lowered the minimum age for trying children as adults. And we began putting 13 and 14-year-old kids in adult prisons where they're at great risk of assault and abuse and 
we still today have 13 states with no minimum age for trying a child as an adult. So I've sometimes represent nine and 10 year old kids being threatened with decades of imprisonment in adult facilities. It's unbelievable. It is. And when you represent children like that, they are children and it's hard for them to even understand. Most of my clients at 13 can't even imagine what life imprisonment without parole is. They can't even imagine what that means. And they do have needs that go beyond the legal needs. They struggle. They're fearful. They're overwhelmed. And, you know, I go and see these clients and I've had visits with young kids who have been really tormented. I had a client who was 14 and had been terribly abused in the facility. And when I got there, he wouldn't say anything. And I put my pen down. I said, look, I can't help you if you don't talk to me. You got to talk to me. And he just kept staring at the wall. And I got up and I walked around the table and I pulled my chair close to me. I said, come on, you got to talk to me. I can't help you if you don't talk to me. And this little boy wouldn't say a word. And at some point, I just leaned on him. I don't even know why, but I leaned on him. And when I leaned on him, he leaned back. And when he leaned back, I put my arm around him. I said, okay, you got to talk to me about what's going on. And he began to cry. And he started talking to me, not about the crime, not about what happened before he got arrested, but he talked to me about what had happened at the jail. And he said on the first night, several men had hurt him and that he'd been assaulted on the next night, that he had been terribly abused on the third night. And I remember holding this little boy while he cried hysterically for almost an hour. And I said, look, I'm going to get you out of here. So you stay right here. And when I tried to leave, he grabbed me by the arm. And he said, please, please don't go. Please don't go. I said, no, it's all right. It's OK. I'm going to get you out of here. And when I left the jail, the question in my mind was, who is responsible for this? And the answer is we are. We've allowed these narratives to emerge that some children aren't children. And I really believe we have to change that. I don't think a society shows its commitment to children by looking at how well we treat talented kids and gifted kids and privileged kids. Our commitment to children has to be expressed by how we treat poor kids, yeah. abused kids, neglected kids, kids who've fallen down. And that has been the heart of why we have been campaigning to end the prosecution of children, to get kids out of adult facilities. And you're right. When I represent these clients, I do feel like I have to offer more than the role of a lawyer. You sometimes do have to be a father or an uncle or a mentor or a teacher. With my youngest clients, I have a deal. I send them books and I tell them, if you read the book, as soon as you finish reading the book, I will come and see you. And we'll talk about the book and they love getting busy. So they'll start reading through the books. And it's been this thing. And now a lot of these books I've been representing like 20 years and we're still doing the book thing. And every now and then you'll just have a beautiful moment. So one of my clients who I was actually just talking with said, um, I finished the book and I need you to come and see me. I said, all right, I'm going to come and see you. And I don't, I can't keep up with what books I've sent them. Mm. <laughs> and I said, um, what book did you finish reading? And he says, I finished reading The Brothers Karamazov by Fyodor Dostoevsky. And it just overwhelmed me because it was one of my favorite books in college. And the image of my young client sitting on a bunk bed in a state prison in Alabama, reading Dostoevsky, who's talking about truth crushed to earth shall rise again. It's a book full of the commitment to love overcoming inequality. And that image, it was so affirming to me that, you know, I try to give a lot to my young clients because they absolutely give a lot to me. The relationship you have with them, 
I'm glad there's someone like you in the world that's there well, to, thank you. to help these kids out, really. In 2018, you founded two incredible public spaces in Montgomery, Alabama, the Legacy Museum and the National Monument to Peace and Justice, which I really hope I can have the chance to visit one day. Me too. Would you be able to tell me a little bit about these like two spaces and the yeah. intent behind them? Yeah, well, I've been troubled for a really long time about how we have failed in America to really properly acknowledge the legacy of slavery, the history of lynching, um, the history of racial injustice. I think it has made us vulnerable to a lot of the problems that we see today. I went to Berlin, I saw the Holocaust Memorial, and I thought it was very moving. And in Berlin, Germany, you can't really go 200 meters without seeing markers or stones or monuments that have been placed near the homes of Jewish families that were killed during the Holocaust. And that reckoning has caused that community to move forward in ways that I'm not sure we'd move forward in the United States. There are no Adolf Hitler statues in Berlin. Mm -hmm. There are no monuments to the perpetrators of the Holocaust. But I live in a region where the landscape is littered with iconography celebrating the defenders of slavery, the advocates for white supremacy and mm -hmm. racial hierarchy. And so in 2018, we decided to change the landscape and we created a museum that talks about the legacy of slavery. And we wanted to be a first person narrative. And so when you come to our museum, we talk about the transatlantic slave trade where 12 million Africans were abducted, trafficked across the Atlantic Ocean. Two million died or buried at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean. And we haven't really adequately acknowledged that. But we want people to understand that legacy, because I think the real evil of American slavery, it wasn't the bondage. It wasn't the forced labor. That was horrible. But the true evil of slavery in America was the narrative we created where we uh, because enslavers wanted to feel moral and just. So they created this narrative, this false narrative that black people aren't as good as white people, that black people are less capable, less worthy, less human, less evolved. And that narrative survived the end, formal end of slavery. You know, the North won the Civil War, but the South won the narrative war, because even after the war, that idea of racial hierarchy, it persisted. And that led to a hundred years of violence where black people were pulled out of their homes and beaten and drowned and tortured and lynched. And so we built the National Memorial to be a space that allows people to reckon with this history of mob violence against black people. And yes, we had a heroic civil rights movement, which we also celebrate. And it began here in Montgomery, where courageous people would put on their Sunday best and go places to push this country to honor their right to vote and honor their right to be treated fairly. And while they were making that call, they'd be beaten and bloodied and battered, and they would just find a way to keep doing it. And we want people to know that. But we also want people to know that that presumption of dangerousness and guilt that gets a lot of my clients wrongly convicted, it is still with us. And that's why this work is still so urgent. And the last thing we have in our museum is a mission. And we say the mission of our sites is to create a world where the children of our children are no longer burdened by presumptions of dangerousness and guilt, no longer have to confront obstacles and bigotry because of their color, are truly free. And that's really what, for me, these sites are about. What it's all about. While we're in a break, why don't you take a moment to subscribe for free to At Your Services newsletter, Service95 at www.service95.com. We'll be right back. You've had some 
really incredible. I mean, incredible wins in your career from individual cases such as the Walter McMillan case and the Anthony Ray Hinton case to successes that have literally changed the course of justice for the better, such as the 2012 Supreme Court ruling Mm -hmm. against mandatory life sentences without parole for children. But there must be, you know, some losses too, you know, that you still mourn and people that you weren't able to save. And what do you think that tells us about the system still? When I started EJI in the late 80s, 1989, we had a bunch of people who were facing execution. And before I could get a staff together, before I could get computers or books, a man called me and said, Mr. Stevenson, I'm scheduled to be executed in 30 days. Will you please take my case? And I said, well, I can't take a case yet. I'm, I'm still trying to get things together. And he got really quiet and he didn't say anything and he just hung up and it really unnerved me. And I couldn't sleep that night, came back the next day and he called me again. He said, Mr. Stevenson, I know you don't have your books in your staff. He said, but I'm begging you, will you please take my case? He said, you don't have to tell me you can win. He said, but I don't think I can make it if there's no hope at all. I said, of course. And I worked really hard, but every court said too late, too late, too late. And they denied our motions. And I went down to be with him before the execution, the first time I'd ever done this. And uh, I remember being with him outside of the execution chamber. In those days, they executed people by electrocution in the electric chair. And they were shaving the hair off his body to facilitate a more efficient execution, which was just so humiliating. And he came out and I was holding his hands and we were just both really emotional. And what he said to me, he said, Brian, it's been such a strange day. He said, when I woke up this morning, the guard said, what can I get you for breakfast? And at midday, they said, what can we get you for lunch? And then they said, what can we get you for dinner? He said, all day long, people have been saying, what can I do to help you? Can I get you water? Can I get you coffee? Do you need access to the phones? And he looked at me, he said, Brian, it's been so strange. He said, more people have said, what can I do to help you in the last 14 hours of my life than they ever did in the first 21 years of my life? And I couldn't help but think, yeah, where were they when you were three years old and your mom died? Where were they when you were seven and you were being abused? Where were they when you were 11 and you were dealing with addiction? Where were they when you came back from Vietnam, traumatized by, by war and violence? And with those questions in my mind, they pulled this man away and, and strapped him in that chair and they executed him. And, and it was one of those moments where you feel like, yeah, I don't know if I can, I can keep doing this. But what I've learned is it is actually the pain of those moments that have for me motivated me to never want to see anyone experience that again. And Mm -hmm. it has deepened my engagement in the work. It's why, you know, I fought so hard for Walter McMillan. It's why I fought so hard for Anthony Rahan. It's why I fight so hard for everybody. And it's what I want all of my staff and others who do this work to do the same. You have to be willing to fight for people who are vulnerable and marginalized. And you have to recognize that when you do this kind of fighting, you'll have glorious moments, but you'll also have painful moments. There will be times when you feel like you're being flooded. And that's why it's a journey. Yeah. In recent months, we've seen the U.S. Supreme Court making major decisions that will reshape America. Yeah. And correspondingly, there's been a really sharp drop in public trust in the court. In your opinion, is the Supreme Court an institution that is still fit for purpose? You know, when you actually look at the Supreme Court's history, throughout the first 100 years of the court's history, it was the court 
that upheld the legitimacy of slavery. In Dred Scott and in those decisions, the court essentially said that black people are not full human beings. They are inferior. They are not the same as white. And that court pronouncement allowed these states to enslave and to brutalize and degrade and just humiliate black people for decades. And so the court failed. We had this period in the 50s and 60s when the court struck down Jim Crow laws and racial segregation. And I think a lot of people think that's the court. But in the last 30 years, we've seen a retreat from that. And so what we're now seeing, I think, is the reemergence of a court that is not leading the way toward greater justice. And what that says to me is that we have to, again, push for a return to that brief moment when the court was committed to leading on the fight for equality and justice. And I just don't think this court is a court right now that is leading in that way. Brian, thank you so much. You are an extraordinary person and you filled me with so much hope for the world, just knowing that you exist and that you've dedicated your life to helping others. It's it's just incredible. It's incredible. And I've loved having this conversation with you. And there are a couple of things that I would love to wrap up this conversation with. Can you please give me your four steps to change the world and how we can all participate in this fight? I think the four things I would say is that I believe we do have to commit to proximity. I think you have to find ways to get closer to people who are excluded and marginalized, who are disfavored. I think it's very easy in our world to isolate yourself from the problems of other people. And I just think we have to not do that. And so for me, proximity is really key. It's proximity that got me to death row as a law student and changed my career. The second thing is changing the narrative. I don't think it's enough to debate policies and issues. We have to understand the narratives underneath a lot of these policies. There are narratives in the world that are fostering bigotry and violence, and we have to change those narratives. We have to call them out. The third thing I would say is hope. I am persuaded that hopelessness is the enemy of justice. I think injustice prevails where hopelessness persists. And I think our hope is our superpower. And so I think that's the third thing. And then the last thing is that we do have to be willing to do things that are uncomfortable and inconvenient. And it's hard because I think as humans, we're biologically and psychologically programmed to do what's comfortable. We like Mm -hmm. comfort and there's nothing wrong with comfort. But it does mean that we're going to have to make a commitment. We're going to have to make a choice, a decision to do the uncomfortable if we're actually going to advance issues that need uh, to be advanced. But I think when we get proximate, when we change narratives, when we stay hopeful, and when we commit to doing uncomfortable things, we position ourselves to be people who make a difference in the communities where we live, places where we uh, spend our time in the world, which is ultimately the goal. Thank you so much. I, I, I've been thinking about that a lot during our conversation, just how being uncomfortable really brings about change. Yeah. You have to do things that put you outside of your comfort zone because those are the things that are going to be pushing you further. Yeah. And lastly, I would love to know five civil rights activists that you think that we can all get behind right now. I'm a big fan of Sherlyn Eiffel, who's a friend and colleague. She has been the head of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. She just stepped down from that role. But she's been doing really urgent work on democracy and voting rights. And in the U.S. right now, I think we're in a crisis. 
And so I think her work is really, really important as we navigate these challenges about what a democratic nation must hold on to to preserve its integrity and its commitment to freedom. I actually just wrote a foreword for an amazing couple. Uh, Maya Moore is uh, a basketball superstar, one of the greatest players of this century, and she left her career in the WNBA in her prime to crusade for a man named Jonathan Irons, who had been wrongly convicted. And she ultimately helped win his release. They got married. They have a book coming out called Love and Justice. And I think they represent a kind of activism rooted in love toward reform of our unequal, unjust system. And I just love what they represent and particularly what Meyer represents because she a lot of people didn't understand that kind of choice, but I think mm. it's beautiful. So I think they're great. I love the work of people like Desmond Mead, who is doing a lot of work to protect voting rights for people who are formerly incarcerated. And Desmond, through his work, he just won a MacArthur um, Genius Grant, is really inspiring a lot of people. I'm very energized and impressed with the kids who have organized after the tragedy in Florida, the Marjorie Stoneman young people who organized the March for Our Lives. All of those young people, I think, are doing remarkable work advocating against gun violence. You know, they could have all just kind of slipped away and found ways, kind of tried to recover in their own way. But they've stepped up and said, no, we're going to be the face of this movement that is pushing against this unhealthy tolerance of gun violence and guns in America. And I'm really inspired by that. And then there are a lot of indigenous leaders that are really, uh, I think, moving, pushing forward on this conversations around climate and the environment, Winona LaDuke and so many others. I think what indigenous leaders are saying about how we have to treat the earth and how we have to think about our planet and our bodies is really, really important. I don't know if that's four or five. If it's if it's not five, I'll just say I'm a big fan <laughs> of Ibram Kendi's work, who's an academic, but he's really been framing anti-racism as a goal. I think for too long, people have tried just to be, quote, not racist. But when we've had hundreds of years of bigotry creating all of these injuries, we have to commit to being anti-racist. And Ibram has done some fantastic writing and work in uh, educating people on, quote, how to be an anti-racist. And I think that's a really important project if we're going to recover from so many of these challenges. Amazing. Brian, thank you again so, so much. I'll be carrying this conversation with me for a very long time. It's really, it's, mm. it's made me feel incredibly hopeful and really energized. Well, thank you so much. Thank and, you. and thanks for all you're doing to really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Brian. Thanks again to you all for listening. And thanks to Brian for his candor and his time. I hope you all enjoyed our conversation as much as I did. You can find Brian's list on his four ways to change the world in this week's issue of Service 95, our free newsletter available to subscribers via service95.com. I wanted to remind everyone listening to let me know which list you'd like me to open next week's episode with. I've had such fun hearing from you all and hope you'll continue to write me your suggestions, whether it's food, travel, pop culture, the arts. I'm all ears. Write into podcast at service95.com now and listen to next week's episode for my next list. Hope you're all well and see you next week for another very special episode of Dua Lipa at your service. Mm-hmm.